Oh, good morning. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that you reign, you are God, the nations rage, people make threats. Our wisdom, we heap up on itself thinking that that will be enough, that we can solve, that we can decide and you laugh at the wisdom of men. We thank you that from the beginning of time to the end of all that is known on this earth, you reign over every moment. That your plans and your purposes will never be thwarted. They will never be pulled down. They will never be frustrated. So help us to rest this morning in the peace that comes through Jesus Christ. We hold on to him this morning as our King and our Lord. And yet for those who are in the midst of this strife, we think of the brothers and sisters in Ukraine, in Russia, in the neighbouring countries that surround this turmoil, this war. This morning we call out to you on behalf of them. Lord, have mercy, we pray. Intervene in spectacular ways so that people would know that it is you and not the strength of men that can solve this. Comfort the afflicted, we pray. Draw close to the, the mourning, those who have lost, those who are fearful. Lord, have mercy. Call these nations to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. For those who would like to spend some particularly, um, I think, focused time in prayer, particularly for what's happening around the world tonight, don't forget that we have a, a dedicated time of prayer tonight. Um, and I think 7 o'clock. So come along here, 7 o'clock, and... We'll be spending some time together in prayer, not just for what's happening uh, in Europe at the moment, but, but certainly that would be, um, I think, a, a great time for us to gather and just be praying for brothers and sisters in, in great distress at the moment. I think as a quick reminder of where we're up to in this series as we're moving through it in 1 Corinthians, just if you're visiting with us, um, welcome. We're just a few weeks into a, what is going to be a lengthy series, and it take us a good portion of the year, um, to move through this letter of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bible, please, now's a great time, if you haven't already had it out, to get it out. If you're using your phone or an iPad, um, turn off all the other notifications, things that can distract you, and just focus in on your app for 1 Corinthians. And after a somewhat surprising beginning to this letter, a somewhat surprising encouragement in the opening paragraphs of this letter, Paul suddenly moves towards helping the Corinthians to find their identity and their security in the message 
of the gospel. That is Paul's recurring theme in all of his letters, but certainly it is here. So rather than a whole host of other things that had crept into the life and the practice of the church there, Paul wants to redirect their attention, he wants to redirect our attention into the security and the identity that we find in the message of the gospel. The first, the first real concern that Paul turns his attention to is that um, the Corinthians, if you, if you were here last week, the Corinthians had re-diverted their attention to a misplaced identity. Their identity was being wrapped up and found in who it was that they elevated, which personalities in the early church did they align themselves with? So remember, some of them said, hey, I'm, um, I'm a Paul guy. I really like Paul. He's my man. And others said, no, Apollos. And others said, no, Peter. And there was always those people who are like, well, I'm going to beat everyone. I'm Jesus, right? I'm, I'm going to do that. But... And rather than finding their identity in who Jesus said they were, they had developed an unhealthy competitiveness, a rivalry, remember, that were based on factions of hero worship. And so now Paul is going to continue. We, we're not going to leave that theme. He's not like moved on from it. He's going to continue with that theme in addressing the foolishness of that type of misplaced identity that we can fall into the trap of. He's going to show it, us how it's based on a wisdom that although it seems at home in the way that the world views things, the way that the world thinks, it's completely contrary. It completely cuts against the grain of the message of the gospel. So I've broken today's passage up into three main sections, and uh, we're going to look at them just one at a time. I'm, I'm going to read the whole passage all the way through in one go, like I often do, and we're going to see if we can just follow Paul's way of thinking here. So 1 Corinthians, we're still in chapter 1. But we're right towards the end of that chapter, so we're going to read from verse 26. Um, and to try and help us see the link to what we're looking at from last week, let me just quickly read verse 17. That's not on the screen, that's fine. Just look at it in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17. It says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Paul's reminding us, you know, listen, I'm glad I didn't baptize many people in Corinth because he didn't want them to contribute. He didn't want to contribute to their hero worship of him. He didn't come to baptize, he said, but to preach the gospel. And he says there in the last part of that verse 17, that he wanted to preach the gospel in a certain way, a way that would not empty the cross of Christ of its effect. And that's the central issue that we want to turn our attention to today. It's where Paul's going to go, what's the central issue here? Well, really, it's about wisdom. Wisdom. And Paul says that when it comes to wisdom, there are two ways of being wise. There are two ways to think about wisdom. There's the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. 
And they're the two things that we need to keep in our focus this morning as we're reading, all right? There's the world's wisdom and there's God's wisdom. And he's going to exhort us, he's going to encourage us and challenge us to exercise a great deal of caution when it comes to defining what we think is wise or what we think is foolish for that matter. Because not everything is what it seems. And that's my first heading, all right? Not everything is what it seems. So let's read from verse 18, verse 18, sorry. And we'll read down to verse 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Now the problem, as Paul states it, is everyone wants to come to God on their own terms. But rarely on His, right? The Jewish people, he said, the Jewish people were always looking for God to prove himself. Do you remember even in Jesus' earthly ministry? The recurring question, the recurring request from the Jewish crowds were, show us a sign, show us a sign. Show us a sign, show us a sign. Jesus got so sick of it. So I'm not showing you any signs, he said, except one. I'll show you the sign of Jonah. And they all went, oh, never heard of that one before, but they always wanted signs. The Gentiles, the Greeks, well, they wanted to use reason and logic, right? It had to make sense. God, you have to make sense to me. If you can make sense to me, then I'll believe. Most of the Western way of thinking, even 2,000 years later, is based on Greek philosophy, Greek way of thinking, Gentile understanding. It dominates the Western world. And we do the same thing today, right? This doesn't make sense to me. I'm not, I'm not doing it. We say that all the time, about everything, not just spiritual things. This doesn't make sense to me. I'll, I'm not doing that. If it doesn't make sense, I won't engage with it. So many of us think about God like that. So much of the world thinks about God like that. 
But the gospel undermines all of our natural ways of trying to make God into a performing monkey. And God says, come to me on my terms or not at all. And the very thing that the whole world calls foolishness is actually the wisest of all, Paul says. What is it that is so wise? Have a look at verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Focus your attention back there again. Let's read it. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it, so the it there is the, the word of the cross. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but the word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. I want you to really notice that, okay? The unbelieving world looks at the word of the cross, and we'll try and define that soon, but the unbelieving world looks at the word of the cross and they say, what foolishness? What foolishness? But Paul says, for those of us who are being saved... Well, the word of the cross is the source of God's power at work in this world. It's important to see what the verse actually says. The word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. So this morning, if you are longing for the power of God to be evident in your life, don't disconnect yourself from the gospel. Don't disconnect yourself from the message of God's grace towards sinners. The message that we've been reminded of this morning, even as we gathered around these communion emblems. What is the word of the cross? The word of the cross. In short, I would say it's the gospel, right? It's what Paul describes as we preach Christ crucified. So I want to be completely clear this morning, as clear as I can be. <laughs> Number one, all humanity was created to be in unbroken relationship with God. All humanity was created to be in unbroken relationship with God as both their creator and their Lord, all right? So if we're going to try and define, well, what does it mean, this word of the cross, this gospel, Chris, that you keep talking about all the time? It starts here. It starts with God's intent, God's desire for all mankind created to be in unbroken relationship. Number two, sin entered the world when the first Adam and the first Eve, as representative of all of humanity, willfully deliberately rebelled against God's right to be God. And that's what it comes down to. It's not about whether or not it was an apple or a pear or what sort of fruit it was in the garden. That it wasn't like that fruit had some special seed or something in it that really poisoned us. This was about an act of willful disobedience where both Adam and Eve said, God, you will not be God, I will be. 
which is funny because that's exactly what the serpent had said. Satan had said, I will rise to the throne. I will be in the place of God. And they set themselves against God in an attempt to be self-governing and independent of Him. That's how sin entered this world and that's how sin has continued. Humanity who desires to be independent of God and set themselves up as self-governing, self-directed. We do not need God. We do not want this man to rule over us, right? But it came with a curse. And the curse of sin means that all humanity now, both Adam, Eve and all their descendants are now stained by the presence and the effect of sin. And we are required to pay the full wages that sin requires. The Bible says that the wages of sin are death. Eternal separation from God's presence. But, but God in complete alignment with his justice, in complete alignment with his righteousness, sends Jesus to live a righteous life in complete obedience to the law of God, the perfect representative of humanity, a second Adam. A second Adam. And as the second Adam, humanity's perfect representative, Jesus, dies an innocent man's death, although the cross made it appear that he died as guilty. But he was a spotless sacrifice. Remember John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus dies as an innocent man, a spotless sacrifice, and he carries all the sin of all of humanity to the cross, and in doing so, pays the sin debt for all of mankind. He completely satisfies God's justice towards sin. Sin must be dealt with, and Jesus said, it is finished. I've dealt with it in full. And yet, having died, Jesus does not stay dead. He is then raised to life again in three days, defeating death, proving his divinity and power over sin and the grave. Why are you here looking for him among the dead? The angels said. Remember that? Why would you be here looking for him among the dead? Things aren't what they seem. Lastly, new life is now offered to all who place their faith and trust in Jesus alone. New life, as God had intended it from the very beginning, unbroken relationship with the Father, eternal security in His presence, righteousness, hope, all given to those who place their faith in Jesus alone, who acknowledge, firstly, their rebellion, their place in humanity's rebellion against God, and they say, I am a sinner. 
I have sinned, both willfully and deliberately. My sin has affected other people. But I rest in the grace of God shown to us in Jesus for our salvation. And we stand before God. This is the most unbelievable part, I think, of the entire gospel. That God looks at me in all my ongoing, broken and... Not just broken as if that's a passive thing, like, oh, the cup got broken. That's what happens when you say to the kids, what happened here? I don't know. It just broke. Really. The glass was just sitting there and it just exploded all on its own. And sometimes we talk about our own sin like that. We say, oh, we're just broken. We forget that we have a very active part in that. But in Christ, the Father looks at you and he sees the righteousness of his Son. He calls you a co-heir with Christ. A living hope. Righteous as his Son, Jesus. And not on our merit, not on our deserving, not because we've earned our way into that position, but all because Jesus gave over all of his righteousness to us, even as he absorbed and took all our sin from us. That's the word of the cross. And it is foolishness to people who are perishing. They either say, well, God needs to prove himself. Okay, what, what other proof do you want, right? Jesus died and rose again. Jesus tells a story of um, a rich man and a poor man. The poor man's name was Lazarus. Do you remember it? Whether it's an actual story of something that actually happened, but Jesus uses it to describe a very important truth. Lazarus, the poor man, begged at the rich man's table. The rich man gave him nothing. Eventually, the poor man, in his simple faith, became so sick that he died. And sometime later, Jesus said, the rich man died also. The rich man ended up in Hades. We might think of that as hell, the place of death. And he looked across a great gulf, a great divide, and he could see the poor man, Lazarus, standing with Abram, an image of God's chosen people. And the rich man was in torment, it said. And he longed for Lazarus to be sent across this great divide and just bring him even just a one drop of water to cool his tongue, he said. Jesus said, it's impossible. No one can come from that place to here. And then something very interesting. The rich man says, okay, well, if I can't escape my torment, please at least, at least send my ghost, my spirit, back to the world to warn my brothers that they too might not end up here. And Jesus said, even if a man raised from the dead they will still not believe. Jesus said that while he was still alive. In full knowledge of the, the state of unbelief of people in their sin, they look at it and they say, what foolishness, God dying on a cross? Or others say it makes no sense. It doesn't make sense to me. 
Paul's warning is this. It's not what it seems. It seems like foolishness, but in fact, the word of the cross is the power of God at work in this world. The bottom line is this. Sinners can't save themselves. We can't save ourselves. We require a savior. And that savior is Jesus. I'm not going to assume anything of anybody who's walked through the door this morning or watching on a live stream. So let me try and make this very clear. You require a savior. So do I. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus rose again to give you new life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. We are saved by grace and grace alone. It is a gift. It comes through faith. It doesn't come from us. We cannot stand before God and boast. We cannot stand before God one day and say, Well, God, I'm really glad that you paid attention to me long enough to see all my good things. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps and I got here by hard work. We can't do that. And that message is foolishness to those who are perishing. But remember, not everything is what it seems. That message is the power of God to those who are being saved. And so it leads us to finding our confidence in the gospel and not ourselves. Have a read of the next section. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 26 down to the end of the chapter. Verse 26. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The little section that we just read begins with a command. Did you see it? Consider your calling which at the very least should tell us that an important part of our understanding of who we are our identity as Christ followers is linked to our understanding of where we've come from because at first glance it may appear that Paul is insulting the church in Corinth calling them a bunch of dummies all right Bunch of nobodies, bunch of weaklings. But look again. Paul is establishing a truth that the Corinthians and we desperately need to grasp here. 
the, the, main, the main principle at work in this little section is that God didn't choose us because we deserved it. The world's wisdom says that if we're good enough, if we're special enough, if we're smart enough, if we're powerful enough, successful enough, then people will take notice of us. That's the world's wisdom. And that wisdom begins to bleed over into the way that we think about God. If I'm good enough, if I'm self-controlled enough, if I'm generous enough, or if I'm kind enough, God will take notice of me and do good things for me. And that's the foundation of every false religion and every idol-worshipping or animistic community on earth. I need to make God happy enough for Him to either not hurt me and maybe even bless me. So if I want my crops to grow this year, then I need to sacrifice something to make my God happy enough so that He doesn't send pestilence or, or bugs to eat my crops. And just in case you think that only happens in some jungle country somewhere, it happens here. We just have more sophisticated ways of doing it. I want God to give me a better job, so I'm going to try harder at you being self-controlled. I'm going to really try hard to be patient and kind because I want God to answer this prayer that I'm praying at the moment. Instead of insulting, Paul is actually delivering astoundingly good news to the Corinthians and to us as well. He's asking them, where does your confidence actually rest? Or maybe where should it rest? And the answer is it rests solely in Christ and the work of the cross. It rests in the gospel. He's saying, listen, look, from a human perspective, we can't all say that we're very wise or that we're very powerful or that we come from a really good background, a noble birth. And yet God looks past all of those things because it doesn't rest on that. It rests on what he did. Anyone who God calls can come, this passage says. Anyone. There isn't a prerequisite. In fact, if you've walked in here this morning thinking to yourself, I'm too dumb to be useful to God. I don't understand things the way other people seem to. Or maybe you, you say, I'm so weak. I just don't seem to have the strength needed to make it as a Christian. Maybe you say, I'm a nobody. I haven't come from a good family or a nice part of town. I didn't have a good education. I have good news for you this morning. If if you say any of those things to that internal dialogue that goes on inside your head, you are just the sort of person God's looking for. You are exactly the person that God is looking for. 
God wants people who know that the only reason they are in God's family is because Jesus picked them up out of the gutter, wrapped his arms around them, put his robe on them, placed his family crest on their finger and said, you are mine. The only reason. In fact, if you think that God somehow owes you something because you're smart enough, strong enough or important... Spoiler alert, that's exactly what the Corinthians were thinking. Then Paul says, consider your calling. Consider your calling. Reminding each other of the gospel regularly. Reminding yourself of your calling daily is a vital way of building your confidence as a disciple of Jesus. Your only boast is Jesus, and that's exactly the way that God wants it. In fact, that's the way he demands it. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, have a look at it again. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us. See that? Jesus is the wisdom that we require. It also says that he is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You are in Jesus because of what God did for you. Not because of something that you did. Your wisdom your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption, it's all found in Jesus. He is our wisdom, right? He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. So what boast are we left with? Just Jesus, that's it. He is our only boast. So here's my last thing that I want you to hear this morning. You have... Paul's permission, in fact, you have God's permission to be absolutely ordinary. Let's read together chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Paul says, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that, underline that, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul's exhortation to you, and mine also as I try to echo his words, is that you no longer need to try and perform. You can lay down your juggling sticks. You don't need to keep all those balls in the air any longer. You can learn to simply rest in his presence. You don't need to impress God. In fact, you don't need to impress anybody for that matter. 
You don't need to impress him with your service, with your expertise. God actually wants you for you, not what you can do. He actually just wants to be with you. Not, Not for all the amazing things that you can do. Or not because of how amazing your gifts and your abilities are. He just wants to be with you. You have permission to be ordinary. In fact, the more ordinary you are, the better. When we try to make ourselves seem more put together than we actually are, we don't actually make Jesus look good. In fact... We just make ourselves look good. But really ordinary people, and when I say ordinary, I really mean ordinary, the the sort of way that we Australians use the word. Because there's an ordinary way of using the word ordinary. (laughs) Ordinary just means not spectacular or just average, right? But we Australians use that word, at least in a slang type of way, when someone says, how are you feeling? Pretty ordinary. (laughs) And what we mean by that is, not so good. If if I'm struggling, last night I had had a migraine last night. I was feeling very ordinary. Very ordinary. So much so that I sat down to do a rat. That's a new word in our vocabulary, isn't it? (laughs) If I'd said that four years ago, everyone would have just gone, he's still pretty ordinary. Like, (laughs) I was like, man, I hope I'm not getting real sick with this COVID thing or something, you know, but it was clear. I was just ordinary, real ordinary. Really ordinary people they're the, they're the stumbling along and tripping over people all the time. Is that how you feel in your Christian faith? How's your walk with Jesus going? Pretty ordinary. I feel like I'm just stumbling over and tripping up all the time. The people who remind you of that guy you know, and we all have this guy that we know, that guy that you know that really married up. Think, you look at this guy and you think, how, how did he end up marrying that girl? Like, what on earth did she see in him? People think about that about me all the time. He's really ordinary. And we all know. We all know guys like that, right? Maybe you girls know a girl like that. For the life of you, you just still can't figure out how we end up with a spouse like that. All right, that's us. That's us. When the bride of Christ, the church, stands next to Jesus, people are going to say, wow, they really married up. 
Like they are super ordinary people. How on earth did Jesus love them like that? Right, you might feel weak this morning and fearful and your knees might be shaking as you stumble along in your Christian walk. You might feel that you can't get two words out straight as you talk to people about your faith. Good. That is exactly how Paul felt, so you are in great company. We don't need more polished presentations, okay? We don't. We don't need perfect performances. We don't need more salesmen with straightened and whitened teeth. We need more gospel. A friend of mine, um, an author, Jared Wilson, one of my favorite quotes by this, and I have it on the screen. I love this. He says, you don't have to bring the fire, bring the thunder, bring anything. Just bring the gospel. It will do the thundering. That's why Jared writes books. We desperately need the thundering of the gospel today. We need people in this church whose only boast is Jesus, right? We need more ordinary people in the Australian way of saying it as well. We need more ordinary people who've considered their calling. Not many wise, not many powerful, not many of noble birth and Jesus looks past all of that and he says, I just want you so that your faith rests in the boast that you are with Jesus and that is all that matters. Ordinary people who've considered their calling, who rest in the confidence that only the gospel can give. Foolishness to the world, but the power of God to those who are being saved. People who find their strength in the power of God that comes through the word of the cross. Let's pray. God, when you say that your foolishness is smarter than our wisdom, it's not that you're saying that you are foolish, but even the things that we look at and don't understand about you, even that, that's, that's greater and more powerful and more magnificent than, than anything that we could ever think. And when you say that your weakness is even stronger than our greatest strength, it's not that you're saying that you are weak. But Lord, we acknowledge that even the best that we have to bring, all of our strengths, all of our expertise, they all fall short. Lord, we want to be a people here in Raymond Terrace Community Church whose only boast is Jesus. We want to just cling to him as our only hope. The word of the cross, the gospel of grace is the power of God that we need. And so, Lord, help us to rest in that. Help us to find our identity in you alone. Not what we bring not what we can do, or not even our failures. Just you. 
just your grace, just the gospel. So, Lord, thunder in this place, we pray. Amen.